this morning, I have the privilege of uh, starting a conversation that we are calling Deja Vu. And um, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Deja Vu, you know that eerie sensation uh, that you've experienced this moment before. Deja vu. Like, I've been here before. This feels so eerily familiar. Um, I know my kids experience a lot of that every single day of their lives. Like, hey, how was school? And they roll their eyes. Like, here we go again. I feel like I'm reliving uh, the same experience. Like, um, man, uh, are you wearing clean underwear? Uh, Did you wash your hands? Don't kick the cat. You know, who do you like? You know, uh, those kinds of things, which are just torturous. Um, on repeat. But as adults, we understand this deja vu. It's like, yep, there's the electric bill again. feel like I've been here before. Like, oh, yep, there is another social media post about politics. feel like I've been here before. Oh, there is Tom Brady in the Super Bowl again. <laughs> oh, man. That's, so anyway, that's what this series is about. That <laughs> Tom Brady is not in the Super Bowl this year. Praise you, Lord. <laughs> Praise the good Lord Jesus. He lives. Um, <laughs> but, um, man, a, a few weeks ago, we officially celebrated our um, ninth birthday as a church. That's still a trip to me, y'all. That means like we are, yeah, that's, that's, that's worth praising the Lord for, um, which means we're like seven years away from driving. Like if you think, if you think things are crazy now, watch out devil. We're about to get our license and we're coming for you. Um, but it's honestly, it feels like the Holy Spirit every three years or so will just return us to the start and remind us of, of who we are. And if you're here last week, really this series started last week. Um, and just bringing us back to who he's called us to be. And reminding us that the most important things are worth repeating. The most important things are worth repeating. So it seemed fitting that we would start this series on Groundhog Day um, of all days. By the way, what's the word from the little freaky groundhog? Like... No shadow? Early spring? (laughs) Okay, can we just agree that it's weird that we're like, the groundhog said? The Lord has spoken through this critter, and we receive his word as the truth, you know. Um, Hey, regardless, if it's an early spring, I'll listen to whoever says that. Um, But the most important things are so well worth Repeating, And so for those of you who've been around Mission Point um, for a while, this is actually the first passage we looked at when the church officially launched. And if you've been here a while, we have come back to this passage several times. So for you, it's going to definitely feel like deja vu as we return to the places that we believe are most important as we continue to look forward. If you have a copy of the Bible, we are going to be in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we're going to start reading at verse 11. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, by the way, no worries. The verses will pop up here in a moment on the screen um, behind me. If you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love to get one into your hands. We get super giddy whenever somebody comes and asks us for a copy of the Bible. We would love to do that. Just head to the connection corner 
um, after the service, and it will be our honor and our gift to you. Um, Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 11. In my Bible, this is read. Jesus um, is about to speak here in a moment. Okay? It says, while they were listening to this, he, Jesus, went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. All right, so Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And a lot of stories seem to start this way. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem um, to give his life on the cross. He's making his final approach to uh, Jerusalem. And on his way, he makes a pit stop in the city of Jericho. And uh, while he's in Jericho, he stirs up a little controversy as Jesus was prone to do. Uh, He invites himself as one of the most well-known religious, if not the most well-known religious figure on the planet at the time. He invites himself to the home of one of the most well-known public enemies, um, a wee little tax-collecting character named Zacchaeus. Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' home and people are freaking out. What's this religious guy doing at the home of this public enemy, number one, super shady Um, Dude, while Jesus is at Zacchaeus' home, miracle of all miracles, this shady character embraces hope and turns away from his sins. In response to the salvation of Zacchaeus, Jesus celebrates um, and he makes one of his most famous declarations. And I can imagine Jesus just thrilled. This is what it's all about. And it's in that moment that he speaks the words, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is actually what this whole thing is about. And then he tells them a story to reemphasize that point that the son of man has come to seek and save the lost like shady characters such as Zacchaeus. Um, So here's what's going on. Everyone knows Jesus is heading to um, Jerusalem, and uh, everyone has a sense that he is making his final approach. There's just this ominous sense of anticipation brewing in the air, because people now generally believe Jesus is the Messiah of God, which to them meant that Jesus is God's military superhero who is going to march into Jerusalem and he's going to take down the Roman overlords. He's going to take down the brutal Roman empire. He's going to set the Jews free and he's going to establish his permanent kingdom of peace and joy. So as Jesus is making his approach toward Jerusalem, the place is hype. People believe this is a wrap. This is it. Jesus is about to go into the, to the, the phone booth and is about to put on his super Messiah outfit and he's about to kick some serious Roman tail, take names, all of that, establish his kingdom and everything is going to be good. It's about to be on. And so people quit their jobs, um, you know, people leave their homes and they're coming convinced Jesus is about to spark a war overthrow the Romans, and establish his kingdom forever. He's now 18 miles away from the capital city, and people are full of anticipation. This is the end. So sitting there at this dinner party, Jesus wants to set the record straight. 
And he uses a parable to do it. A parable is one of Jesus' favorite teaching um, devices. And uh, a parable is simply a lesson tucked away in a story. Uh, It's a lesson tucked away or principle tucked away in a story. And Jesus would often use parables when he wanted the folks he was talking to to lean in a little bit. When he wanted the folks he was talking to, to to work a little bit and have to ask the question, what did he mean by that? We're going to have to think about this one. And so he wants the folks there to lean in and he tells them a parable. Powerful, emotional story that I can't believe has honestly not been turned into a movie yet, if you know anyone. So verse 12, here's what he says. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. The implication is one each. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects, not to be mistaken for his servants, hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And first order of business, he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained. Such a powerful story. Um. The minute Jesus would have started telling the story, uh, the people who had crashed that dinner party and were listening to him would have immediately recognized the story. Jesus would have been calling upon a story, a familiar story from their recent history. And the minute he started, they would have said, "Ah, I know this story and we love this one. When Jesus was born, uh, there was a character in power named Herod. Um... And some of you will will remember this guy. Um, Herod was in charge of that particular region. Now, technically speaking, Herod was a puppet in the hands of the Romans. The Romans were really in charge, but he was one of their surrogate rulers, but still a powerful guy in charge of that particular region. At some point before Jesus was born, um, Herod went to war against... uh, a country, an empire that was an enemy of the empire of Rome. And Herod succeeded in defeating this empire. When the Romans found out that Herod had taken out one of the enemies, they were thrilled. And so the Caesar called Herod over and said, we are so thrilled that you took down one of our enemies. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to make you king over your region. Not just ruler, we are going to make you king over that region. Which is why when you read the Christmas stories, it talks about King Herod. The Romans had given him that designation. When King Herod died, he left his empire, um, with the majority of his empire, to one of his sons. A character named Archelaus. Archelaus was crazy. This dude was psychotic. He was a sociopath. He was power hungry. He had a 
tender ego. He was deeply insecure, which showed up in immensely cruel acts. This guy was crazy. And one of the things that made him even crazier was that even though his dad, Herod, could leave him you know, in charge of that region, could leave that area to him, what his dad could not do was leave him the designation of king. <laughs> so while Herod was King Herod, Archelaus was just Archie. And this drove him mad. I'm a man too. I got power too, which made him lash out in some of the most cruel acts imaginable. At one point, he killed 3,000 Jews and piled their bodies in the temple for no good reason, which would have been A, just an act of unspeakable cruelty, and B, an absolute affront to everything that mattered to the Jewish community. You put these bodies in our temple. What is wrong with you? He would torture folks Thousands and thousands of folks, just a cruel, crazy dude. Needless to say, the Jews hated Archie. Hated him. Not a fan of this guy. So when this story starts, everybody understands, ah, you're talking about Archie. Boo! Apparently at one point, you can guess it. Archie just couldn't tolerate being just Archie, so he decided, I'm going to take a trip to Rome, to that distant country, to see the Caesar and ask him, beg him to make me king. And then I'll come back. But before I go, I don't want my kingdom to, to, to experience, you know, any losses. And so I'm going to pull together some of my most trusted servants. I'm going to pull together some of my people, and I'm going to entrust my region to them and give them strict orders. Make sure I continue to make a profit. Matter of fact, make sure that I even gain a little expansion of my territory. So he gives his orders. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And then he takes off. I don't know if I mentioned though the Jews hated Archie. So when he starts off with his little entourage in his caravan, and this entourage was made up primarily of some of his friends and some of his family. And so they start to take this trip to Rome. A delegation of about 80 Jews secretly trailed that caravan behind so they would get to Rome and protest this whole idea in front of Caesar. So they actually successfully get to Rome, and not only that, they find there are 8,000 Jews who lived in Rome waiting for these 80 Jews, and together they stand outside the palace, and they protest, thumbs down to the crown. Police don't do it, Caesar. Police don't do it. But the worst of surprises actually happened inside the palace. This guy, (laughs) Archie, goes in the palace to talk to the Caesar. And as he's begging the Caesar to make him king, his family and friends turn on him. Turned out his, his family actually went with him so that they could beg the Caesar not to do it. Like Caesar, I'm sorry, Archie, he's crazy. Like, please don't do this. And Mabel, I'm sorry, you're crazy. Just like my brother, your dad was. And so after all of this, Caesar's like, um, your own people don't like you. Your family doesn't like you. Matter of fact, it seems like the people you want to be king over hate you. And they're like, please don't make... Do you know what his insecurity would do when given the power of a crown? Please don't do it. And Caesar's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to pull this one off. 
and instead they give him some patronizing, useless, meaningless title like, like assistant to the regional manager. And then they send him back home. <laughs> so Archie comes back, you know, um, to where he lives as just Archie completely denied the crown. So when Jesus starts telling this story, everyone is like, this is such a good story. About the epic crowning fail of Archie. That one time, this man of noble blood took a trip to a distant country to go try and make himself king. And it failed. Woo! Jesus, tell that story again. Start that story again. That's one of our absolute favorite stories. But in true Jesus fashion, he flips the script and has everybody scratching their heads. Like, wait, what? I don't know if you saw that. Um, man, Jesus gets to verse 14. And he says. His subjects hated him. And sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Verse 15. He was made king, however. And returned home. What? Time, time out. Whoa, Jesus. Whoa. Um, clearly, you got to polish up on your history because just, no. No, he was not made king. Um, yes, he was. No, Jesus. Matter of fact, he was not. I'm telling this story, and in my version of the story, he was made king. However, there was once a man of noble blood, and he went to a distant country to be crowned king. Oh, his haters. All his protesters, all his enemies and naysayers, they tried all they could to stop him from becoming crowned king. But whatever. He was made king anyway. And then he returned. (laughs) Oh, you thought I was talking about Archie. Mm Mm-mm. I'm talking about me. He completely flips the script on them. This is powerful. Woo! There was once a man of noble blood. I'm talking about me because I don't know if you heard, but my dad's King God. And I'm about to go to the cross and I'm going to die and I'm going to be buried. But don't worry, just like we sang, I'm about to get up out of the grave. I will rise from the dead. I'm talking about me. And after I've risen from the dead, I am going to go on a trip to that distant country called heaven. To see the Caesar of creation about officially crowning me king. My family, some of my friends, oh, they'll resist it. They will deny me. They will sell me out. But guess what? Whatever, I'm going to be crowned king anyway. The devil and his delegates, they will trail my caravan to try and sabotage my crowning. But whatever, I'm going to be crowned king anyway. There will be millions and millions of people in this world who will swear enmity and they will refuse the idea that Jesus would be king over my life. I don't want him to be king over me, but whatever, I'm going to be crowned king anyway. 
I'm talking about me. I'm about to bust up into heaven. And when my father sees me with the biggest smile on his face, he is going to say, hey, Jesus, son. Because you took out that enemy empire of sin and that enemy empire of death, it is my absolute honor to crown you as king. Matter of fact, every knee down there, every tongue down there will confess that you, in fact, are the king of kings. Whatever, I'm about to be crowned king anyway. I'm talking about me. Flips the script. And no one saw this coming. This is a powerful scene in which Jesus is giving them some sense of his future. He's giving them some sense of what's going to happen with him, what's going to happen in his life. I'm talking about me. But I want to make sure that my empire continues to expand while I'm gone. So before I leave, You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to gather my servants together. A bunch of uneducated, unimpressive, unworthy, unsophisticated nobodies called disciples. I am going to gather them together and I am going to do the cosmically unthinkable. I am going to entrust my kingdom expansion enterprise into their hands. I am going to leave my kingdom expansion project to them. And in order to make it possible for them to carry out this expansion of my kingdom, I am going to give them a currency to invest so that they can make me a profit while I'm gone. I want my kingdom to suffer no loss. And that's exactly what Jesus did before he left to go to that distant country called heaven. Remember? Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Jesus rises from the dead. It says, then they gathered around him and asked him. Why? Because they're obsessed with, when is this thing going to end? When are you going to establish your kingdom? It's like, okay, but now you've died, you've risen. Now are you going to go into Jerusalem and do your thing? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Then Jesus said, deja vu, man. I feel like I've lived this before with all of you. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what you have to be concerned about. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, after he said this, he went to a distant country. He was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. I don't know, by the way, if you knew this, but if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are considered one of his servants. And I don't know if you knew this, but when Jesus left, he left his kingdom expansion project in your hands and in my hands. He has called each of us to expand the borders of his reign. 
And in order to enable us to do that, he gave us each a precious currency to invest. Put this thing to work and make me a profit. And yep, you guessed it. What he gave each of us was the precious currency of the gospel. He gave each of us the message of the gospel. And then he left. The message that Jesus came into this world to seek and save the lost. He gave each of us the message that Jesus will freely forgive any one of all of their sins if they come to him. Jesus will freely forgive anyone who comes to him, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done, regardless of how badly they've messed up, regardless of how far they've gone, regardless of how many taxes they've collected. That Jesus will freely forgive anyone. And he put that message in our hands and he said, now I want y'all to expand the borders of my kingdom. Starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The folks listening to Jesus, they were so obsessed with the end. Is it going to end now? Are you going to usher us into paradise? And Jesus is like, it's not about the end right now. It's about the expansion right now. It's not about you all experiencing this kingdom of peace. It is now about expanding and opening the doors so that millions and millions, many who are not yet born, will experience it along with you. It's not about ending it right now. It's about expanding it right now. It's not about closing the doors right now. It's about opening the doors so more would come in. Expand the borders of my territory by telling people I will freely forgive anyone who comes to me. It's time for you to invite as many people as possible to be a part of this eternal kingdom of peace and joy. That is why I'm at Zacchaeus's house. That's why I'm here. There's all this drama and controversy, but this is what it's all about. This guy just came to a knowledge of forgiveness Because I came to seek and save the lost. That's what's concerning to me. And that's what I want to be concerning and consuming to you. Stop it with comfort and the end. And when is this all going to happen? Right now. There is a priority project. That I want you to be. Concerned with. And. Here's really the point of Jesus' story. When I return, I will ask you about it. If you were here last week, this is part of a conversation that I I believe the Spirit continues to bring us back to. He's bringing us back, church, to the question of what will really matter when Jesus comes back. What are the things that will matter the most when all of this is said and done and Jesus returns? And he tells them in this parable, listen, when I return... 
I will start with my church. By the way, you can look at any eschatology, any philosophy of the end times, and you will find the same narrative everywhere. When Jesus calls people to account, he will start with his church. He will start with his people. He's not going to start with people who hated him or people who rebelled against him or people who resisted him. He is always going to start. Whatever you look at, Jesus starts by calling his servants back to himself and saying, let's talk. I will gather my servants and I will want to know what did you gain with my gospel? What did you gain with this message that I freely forgive anyone? What did you do with it? Show me how you invested this message of hope. And apparently there are a number of different responses. Check this out. Verse 16. So the first servant came to this king who's now returned. And said. Sir. Your miner has earned ten more. Wow. Verse 17. The king is thrilled. Jesus is thrilled. Well done, my good servant. His master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Jesus is saying, I did not ask you to do that much. Take charge of ten cities. I wish we had time to talk about this. I don't even know what this means. But I want me some cities. Um, Verse 18. The second came and said, man, that dude killed it. Um, For me, your miner has earned five more. He's thrilled. Verse 19, his master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, um, here's your miner back. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth, super safe. Verse 21, I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You know, you take out what you did not put in and and you reap what you did not sow. So I just, I wanted to be safe. I mean, sometimes you save people and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you're sovereign and I don't know if you're going to save people. And sometimes bad things happen to good people. And I don't understand how some of it works. And so I just wasn't sure. So I just played it safe. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words. You wicked servant. You knew, did you? I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with some interest? Verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, take his minor away from him. And give it to the one who has ten minors. This is so shocking, by the way, that the response in verse 25 is, Sir, but he already has ten. And he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, who has done nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Let me quickly say, 
Nothing in this section is speaking about where that person is going to spend eternity or anything like that. But it is speaking about the fact that when we see Jesus, this thought that is, again, it's all going to be vanilla. We're all going to get the same rewards. We're all going to get the same crowns. We're all going to get the same responsibilities. When it's not true, there will be differences in how Jesus engages one person and how Jesus engages the other. And the difference is how we responded to what he left and entrusted to us. So I want to just make um, a, a, a couple of observations from this passage as we start this conversation, um, this series. Um, the first, I want to say something about the order. I want to say something about the order. Um, the call to share the hope of the gospel is not an option, church. It's an order. It's not an option. It's an order. He is the king. And he is coming back as the crowned king. When he gives a command, it's not an option. It's to be obeyed. Jesus will hold us responsible for whether or not we invested, whether or not we shared the gospel, because he didn't give his servants an option. And you see that in how he responds to this third servant who just doesn't do anything. This is such a powerful reminder for me, this is such a sobering reminder. For us, this is what I believe the Spirit wants to return us to. This is not an option, church. This is an order. And I know that we know that. If I were to ask you, hey, is the command to share with people the truth that Jesus will freely forgive their sins forever? Is that an order or an option? Most of us would probably say it's an order. If I followed that question up by saying, when was the last time or how often do you share this gospel with the people in your world? I think that would reveal what we really think. Because it's not about what I think theoretically. It's about, do I live like this is an order? Do, do I live like it's an option? And the question is, when was the last time? How often are you sharing Jesus' free forgiveness with the people in the world around you. And listen, I, if we are not sharing the gospel in our spheres of influence, we are disregarding a direct order from the king. There's no nice way to say that. It's true. And what Jesus is saying is, when I come back, I will start with that. I will start with y'all, and I will call you to account for it. It is amazing how often I disregard this order in my life. Are you obeying this order? Are you telling the people in your world that Jesus will freely forgive? I want to say something about the gift. Um, because when I don't share the gospel, I have a lot of excuses. And this is one of, one of the top ones. Um, 
I'm just not gifted that way. Like, I'm just not gifted in sharing the gospel. Like, oh, I mean, I'm more introverted, like, so I'm not more, like, of the social talk to other people. I don't like people very much. Um, so uh, I, I feel like this is for those who've been uniquely gifted. I mean, what if I say something and it just doesn't sound right and I put my words together and they don't make a whole lot of sense? Or, or somebody asks me a difficult question and I don't know how to answer the question and then I look and feel more like an idiot. What if people reject it? What if people don't want it? What if people accuse me, you know, of kind of peddling the gospel and pushing it on them? Like, what if, what if I guess uh, I should leave it to those who are uniquely gifted, those who are uniquely equipped, those who are uniquely trained to share the gospel. I like in this story that Jesus didn't expect his servants to be expert investors. <laughs> I like the fact that it says he called his servants. Like, wait, are you sure he didn't call his financial geniuses? Are you sure he didn't call his accountants to handle his money? You're sure he didn't call the experts? No, he called his servants. I love that Jesus knew on that mountainside that he was talking to uneducated, unsophisticated, unseminarized people. He wasn't looking for the fancy. He's not looking for, for, for the, you know, super talented. That's not who he looked for to overturn the world. He looked for the simple. He looked for the obedient. He's looking for obedience. He's not looking for some unique giftedness or some unique ability that we have. I don't think the first two guys were more gifted than the third guy in this story. They were just more obedient. There is none of us who Jesus will let off the hook because we've never taken a seminary class on sharing the gospel. The idea that I'm not sure how to share will not fly. And yet we use it all the time. And many of you I know are the products of really painful households because your dad said that. Like, I don't know how to be a dad. My dad never showed me. So therefore, therefore what? Therefore, I can just retreat. Therefore, I can just withdraw. Therefore, I can just abdicate the responsibility of fatherhood. I'm like, no, therefore you can figure it out. You're an adult. There are resources. You can ask, you can say help, you can say I don't know, but you can't just say like, some people are just gifted good dads, other people are just not, hey! But yet I think we do that when it comes to the gospel, like I don't know how to share a message that would change the eternal trajectory of somebody, and so, you know, I'm just going to sit this one out. The truth is that's never, go I, well, I wasn't sure. There's not a scenario in which Jesus is going to say, oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. All right, well, cool. If you didn't know how, then. Um, this is not for the uniquely gifted, the uniquely talented um, folks. Um, the idea that I'm not gifted or I don't like talking to people, no. We all got the same gospel, and Jesus understood who we were when he gave it, so he gave us the same spirit. He gave us the same Holy Spirit, and he gave us the same 
power, which means, please hear me say this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have everything you need to share the gospel. You have everything you need to be able to obey this command. And if the issue is like, but I don't understand this, you have everything you need to ask the questions. You have everything you need to at least take steps towards carrying out the order. Again, this third guy, that's what he tried. I didn't want to mess it up, so I didn't do it. And Jesus calls him wicked. Jesus doesn't call him ungifted. Jesus doesn't call him more unlucky. He calls him disobedient because he didn't do something. And that's what Jesus said. You could have at least just taken to the bank. You could have at least said, do you know Jesus? No. Would you like to? Yes. I don't know where to go from there, but that's really cool, man. That's really cool. Let's, let's go see somebody. He said you could have at least done something. Which is what I think the church needs to hear over and over and over again. Now, I'm so thankful because one of the reasons we are doing this series is because we realize it is really true that many of us say, but I'm not sure how to have the conversation, how to start the conversation. This series is designed for that, believe it or not. We're going to talk over the next number of weeks. How do we do this? What does this look like in my home? What does this look like in difficult situations? How do I share the gospel? We are going to do that together because that's part of the responsibility of the church. What I am saying, though, is you cannot say, but the church did it. We were waiting for 20 years, and the church never taught us how to do it, so therefore we didn't do it. Jesus, the church. But I'm so thrilled that the church does have responsibility, and I look forward to us getting into this together. Are you sharing the gospel in your sphere of influence? Even though it may be clumsy, even though you may not be sure, even though it may be a little bit messy at home, at work, at school, with your sports teams, whoever it is. Uh, one more observation. I want to say something about the results. Um, and this is so freeing for me personally. So I'm just probably up here just encouraging myself. Um, but I, I noticed that Jesus doesn't seem to hold these guys responsible so much for the results. He holds them responsible for their obedience. One of the most striking phrases from the servants, I love this. They say a couple of times, sir, your minor has earned 10 more. Sir, your minor has earned five more. Sir, your money has earned more. I love that phrase. This is powerful. Jesus, your gospel has saved. Jesus, your gospel has rescued three others. Jesus, your gospel has revived an entire community. I love this because this reminds me, Jesus' primary concern is not about the results. His concern is about our obedience to share the gospel because the gospel is good currency, y'all. It will bring about results all by itself. Your minor has earned. It wasn't the servants who earned 
It wasn't their skill that earned. It wasn't your talent that earned. It wasn't because you put something fancy on it that earned. It was the gospel that earned. There is power in the message and Jesus understands this. Do something with it. Jesus, you could have just thrown it somewhere. You could have just handed it to someone and it would have done its work. There is power in the gospel. It's good currency. Regardless of your skill. Romans 1 verse 16 says the gospel is the power for salvation for those who believe the gospel. Not those who are impressed with the way you presented it. It's the gospel. You may mess up and and people may know all of your messes. But there is power still in the message of the gospel itself. The gospel works y'all. Let it work. I think oftentimes I'm like, but, 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 but I've shared the gospel before and it didn't work. And I, or what if it doesn't work? Jesus is not concerned about how much you can somehow bring about. No, if you share the gospel, you've done your part and the gospel will work. I think about my mother. Bless her heart, all of it. She shared the gospel with me hundreds of times growing up. And I gave her grief for it. Can you stick? Stop talking. This deja vu, you know, I, the most important things are worth repeating. This hope on repeat thing that you continue to do in our house, sharing the gospel. I wasn't interested. She shared the gospel over and over and over again. And I left the house. And I can imagine my mom is like, the gospel doesn't work. <laughs> oh, no. It was years later, I came back to her and I said to her, Mom, thank you for sharing the gospel with me. I came to Jesus like a couple of years ago. <laughs> Woo! She celebrated after years and years and years and years of doing this. I think sometimes we do like, I shared the gospel once or twice or 13 times and I didn't see any results. Therefore, the gospel doesn't work. Woo! The gospel works. In fact, I want to encourage some of you parents. I want to encourage some of you who've been sharing the gospel. And maybe you haven't seen the results. The gospel is powerful. And months or years after you shared it, Jesus will get the interest he wants. I shared the gospel with somebody on the plane. What happened? I don't know. I shared the gospel with my friends. What happened? They said, you're an idiot. Like, oh, okay, so it didn't work. Woo, hold up. Wait for it. Wait for it. The gospel is powerful. This is so freeing to me when I'm so scared. What if I share and people don't respond a certain way or it doesn't work or it doesn't yield? There is power in the gospel. The gospel works. And your grandpa might not be a fan of the church, but your job is not convince him, you know, in some way or another. Your job is to share the gospel and let the gospel do its work. Jesus is calling us to share, to be obedient to what he's said to do. And he will worry about the results in the gospel. Share it with somebody. Stop complicating it by thinking it's on you to get certain results. This story has a chilling conclusion that I want to show you. Verse 27 says, Okay, now that I'm done dealing with my servants, those enemies of mine, I didn't forget about them, who did not want me to be king over them. Bring them here and kill them in front of me. Those are sobering words. Those are sobering words. And here's what I want you to understand. 
For those who do not experience the forgiveness of Jesus that comes through the gospel, this is a portrait of their future reality. For those who did not experience forgiveness, those who did not come to me as their Lord and as their Savior, bring them to me, and this is their reality. I don't know about you, but I don't want to see this be the future reality of anybody that I know. I don't think you want to see this be the future reality of anyone that you know or anyone that you claim to love. And yet when I refuse to share the only hope that opens the portals for forgiveness and freedom, I am saying like, ah, man, whatever future happens for you, happens for you. This is a sobering reality. And um, when we were launching this church, this is a reality that stirred so deeply in us. We heard such a striking, sobering statistic that there were 70,000 people in Kosciuszko County. And out of those 70,000 people, 50,000 were considered unreached. No reason to believe they had a personal relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. 50,000. I'm not talking about jumping on a plane and going to a different country. I'm talking about our county. That stirred us to the core. Uh, And the most recent uh, statistics say that there are a little more than 79,000 people now in our county. And here's the number, 45,325 of those who would be considered Unreached. Let me say two quick things. Number one, praise God, it's no longer 50,000. I would like to think that y'all had something to do with this. As you shared, as you've been sharing the gospel. Here's the second thing I want to say. That's what, over three times the population of Warsaw. These are souls that if they don't experience the forgiveness of Jesus, their future is bleak. And I just want to say, as a church, can we make a declaration from the depths of our souls that we are not okay with this? Can we wage a war of obedience to the words of Jesus and say, we take it upon ourselves to carry the hope and the message of Jesus to these thousands and thousands of in our own county? These are people across the cubicle. These are people who eat lunch across the cafeteria. These are people who you go to work with. These are people in your own home. These are people you do Thanksgiving with. These are people that are on your sports teams. And for us, it was sobering to think these are thousands of people. And when Jesus comes back, he's not going to ask us, tell me about that number. But he's going to ask us, how many times did you share my hope with these people? How many times did you share that there is free forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ for anyone who would receive it? We want to see this number dwindle. Because the church was unleashed, carrying the glorious currency of the gospel and sharing hope on repeat. And when we wake up in the morning, the devil's like, here we go again. Deja vu, the church is sharing the gospel. That people in our county are like, here they come again. And they're going to share hope with us again and again and again. Hope on repeat because the most important things are worth repeating. 
And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of this revival. And I'm tired of praying for revival. Let's pray for revival. And Jesus is like, you can pray for revival, but the currency for the expansion of my kingdom is in your hands. When have you shared revival? Speak revival. Hold out the hope of revival. And we want to take time to just talk about what does this look like for us to be a part of this movement, this revolution. I'm sorry, but if we come to church and we sing songs and we never are part of this, what did we do? I want a better reality, and we were born as a church for a different reality. And we want the next time we look at these numbers to be like, oh, snap, look at that. As the church continues to move unleashed. But before we go... Um, I, I, I want to say to anyone who may be in this room, we don't want to just talk about the gospel, we want to offer it to you. If you're in this room and you would say, I've never experienced my sins freely and fully forgiven, I have great news for you. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how many mistakes you've made, no matter how many people have rejected you, no matter how many family members won't speak to you. Jesus will freely and fully forgive you of every sin you have ever committed in a moment if you simply ask. And we want to invite you to do that. In fact, what I'd love to do is to have all of us pray this prayer together. We'll put it up on the screen so you can see it. Um, I've said this before. Sometimes people say, pray this prayer with me. And I start praying with them. They start going places like, I don't like, Lord, we pray. Lord, we pray. That the Patriots, that the Patriots would win the Super Bowl. I'm like, nope, I'm out. Um, so I want to make sure that what you are praying is something you can see and you can say in faith. And so I'm saying whether you've never said these words before, if you believe that from the depth of your heart you can pray this, or whether you've said this prayer a hundred times, but you agree with it, I want us all to pray this out loud. For the benefit of those who may be praying it for the very first time. And I'm telling you, if you've never prayed this prayer before and you dare to pray this, your life and eternity forever changed. And it's an honor to have been here for it. So why don't we stand together and we'll pray this prayer out loud. And please hear me, this is not a pressure campaign. If you read this and you say, I'm not ready to say that. I can't say that. Don't pray it out loud. But if you believe you can, then I'll invite you to pray this out loud. Let's pray this together. Jesus, I believe that you died to pay for my sins and offer me free forgiveness. Please forgive me now. Amen.